Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast Network. This week's show is brought to you by Twitter. If you like the censorship in the Jack Dorsey era, you ain't seen nothing yet. This week we're talking with author and podcaster Andrew Claven, the mind behind the great new mystery, When Christmas Comes. Andrew is one of the sharpest cultural observers around, and when his fiction is both first-rate and absurdly addictive. And he writes one mean book forward. More on that later. You know, sometimes you read something, and it just sticks with you for months, if not much longer. That's the case for me. I was reading a book by Derek Hunter, a very smart podcaster. It's called Outrage, Inc. And it's all about our outrage culture and really kind of digs into it on multiple levels. But there was one passage in it that I just couldn't get out of my mind. It's still stuck there. He talks about how the media loves to regurgitate what liberals say. Could be an athlete, could be a celebrity. Maybe it's Robert De Niro trashing Trump for the millionth time. They print it. As is, pretty much. No criticism, no fact-checking. It just is what it is. Now, part of that is perfectly understandable. A celebrity says something, it could be newsworthy. But it happens an awful lot. And I had to ask myself, why? Well, Derek Hunter explained it. He said, well, they agree with them. But as corrupt as the press currently is, and gosh, it's corrupt, they can't come out and just say it. They can't shout their progressive opinions. So... They just share what a De Niro or LeBron James says uncritically, and it helps spread those opinions far and wide. Voila. Now, I bring that up because the very opposite is happening ever since Greg Gutfeld crashed the late-night party. Now, Gutfeld leans to the right, no, no uh, argument there, and his creatively titled show, Gutfeld, note the exclamation point, is now at or near the top of the late-night ratings heap. It's kind of crazy. And he did it in just a few months. The show debuted in April, and around late summer, he was, I think he dethroned Stephen Colbert at that point. Yeah, he built that. So you think that the same media that endlessly parrots all those Colbert quips and the Kimmel bits and Trevor Noah's outrage rants would do the same with Gutfeld's one-liners, right? 
Huh. Not a chance. You know, I wrote about this phenomenon at justthenews.com recently. I looked at how the media's late-night TV reporters, whenever they do a wrap-up story, when they kind of assemble all the best clips for the week, whenever they kind of share what Colbert said or Bill Maher said, well, they just leave out Greg Gutfeld every single time. I looked at The Guardian, I looked at The New York Times, I looked at other news organizations. Whenever they do these wrap-up stories, no Gutfeld. And of course, they'd have single stories dedicated to a single sketch, a single comment, a single rant by Jimmy Kimmel. There's nothing like that going on with Gutfeld. Why? I mean, he's near or at the top of the late night ratings heap. That means he's got an audience. It means people care about him. So why? Well, what Derek Hunter said, the media doesn't agree with Gutfeld. That's why. They don't want to regurgitate his opinions. They don't want to spread them out. They don't want to share them uncritically. It's one of a zillion examples of media bias, but I have to say, this one really jumps out at me. And I kind of wonder, is Gutfeld mad about this? Possibly. I mean, he should be mad about it. Those articles are free publicity at the very least. All publicity is good publicity, especially when it's uncritical. I mean, all these news outlets are reporting on these different late-night shows. They're not excoriating them. They're not directly celebrating them, but the tone is pretty, pretty obvious what's going on. Of course, Greg is only himself to blame. All he has to do is bash Tucker Carlson or Mitch McConnell, and suddenly the press is going to discover his keen, incisive wit, and he'll get all the free publicity he wants. It's that simple. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week's Toto's take is Pig. Nicolas Cage stars as... All right, stop, wait. This is not another low-budget Nick Cage romp where he's chewing all the scenery and going berserk. He's done that time and time again. And sometimes it's actually kind of fun to watch, but I think that that shtick is really getting stale. He's a good actor. He's got an Oscar. But lately he spends so much of his time doing these really kind of B-level movies where he's taking on the bad guys and looking tough and stoic and cool. Now, I love good B-movies, so I'm not going to really complain about that too much, but his latest stuff kind of stinks. There was one movie, I think it was called Willy's Wonderland. I, I, I think I sat through half of it, then I shut it off, and I thought, why didn't I do that earlier? This is a terrible movie. It's not even fun. But not Pig. In Pig, he plays an isolated guy who's living in this remote cabin with a pig. Now, that pig has a nose for truffles, and the pig sniffs them out. Cage's character digs them up and he either cooks them, he's a chef, or he sells them. I think he makes some good cash out of the way. Except that one day, some bad people come along and they steal his pig. 
Got to go get that pig, right? But this isn't John Wick and the dog situation. Sure, Nicolas Cage's character loves that pig, but it's not an action movie romp where he's blasting away hundreds of people. This is really a, a more sentimental, a quieter film, a film with more passion, with more reserve to it. It's about tr- staying true to yourself. It's about resisting cultural temptations. It's about being an artist and all the suffering that often in- endures. Cage is really good here. There's none of that crazy wildness we've seen from him in the, in the recent past. He's really showing the pain in his character's heart. It's a it's an really internal performance. And, you know, it's been a while, but when Cage do, does just that, he really is effective. Now, if you've given up on Cage, and I get it, he's been kind of wacky the last few years. His performances are way over the top. And it uh, seems like an odd duck off camera, I have to say. I never interviewed him, but just some of the stories you read, maybe he's a little bit peculiar, but hey, he's an actor, he's an artist, he's okay to, it's okay to be peculiar, but just, just give the good performances, which he has not done of late, but he does it with Pig. Now, I have to say, this is not for everyone. It's a slower film. It's, uh, again, it's, it's kind of artistic in nature in a way that really demands your full attention. So if you're not into that, just skip on by. Maybe watch Raising Arizona for the hundredth time. I know that's one of the, my most favorite things to do. But Pig just got added to the Hulu streaming network. And if you can't find it there or you're not a subscriber, you can find it on your favorite VOD platform. Keep it a go. I'm brand new with this whole book authoring thing, but when I started thinking about someone to write the foreword for my first book, I had only one name in mind. True story. Andrew Clavin. We had met twice before, and he's been really kind to me over the years. I've been on his podcast a few times. We've talked and emailed back and forth now and then. It's more than that, though. Andrew really is one of the sharpest cultural observers on the scene right now. He spots trends before anyone else notices them at all. Kind of like how Hollywood's liberal bent would eventually trickle down at the culture at large. And, you know, I think when the Salvation Army is admonishing people for their white privilege and asking for money, you know Andrew is on the right track. I wish you weren't, but that's where it is. Now, he ended up agreeing to write the foreword to my new book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. And, like everything else he writes, it's a doozy. So, too, is When Christmas Comes. It's his brand new novel. It's a mystery. It follows a pretty atypical sleuth. He's kind of a burly guy, but also well thought out. A lot of demons he's dealing with. And he's trying to solve a murder that, by all accounts, seems like it's already been cracked. But is it? Is there more to the story? Or is the search and the exploration what we're looking at here? Now, again, it's another story where it really kind of hits on some profound moments and intricate themes like family, loyalty, and honor. And I have to say, those last 30 pages, man, you're going to be shaking your head in wonder. And I say that as a good thing. Andrew opened up about the creative process behind When Christmas Comes, his other work, and also why he's feeling more optimistic about the culture at large and the culture wars these days. Andrew's been a good supporter of my work. I appreciate what he's done for me, and I really hope you enjoy my chat with the great Andrew Clavin. Thanks for joining the show, Andrew. You know, I get the sense reading you, hearing your podcast, that there's nothing you'd rather do than uncork a great mystery. And uh, tell me if that's true. And also, why do you think after all these years that the, the genre still has such a hold on you? Well, it's a good question. I mean, writing is a great joy to me. And writing mysteries is kind of just where I live. You know, it's what, what I grew up reading. It's the thing that made me into a reader who was reading the great American mysteries of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. They meant so much to me because they gave me a kind of 
they gave me role models, which I didn't have much of in my life. And uh, they, you know, especially Raymond Chandler and Philip Marlowe, the idea of an honest man in a corrupt world was something that as a kid just really riveted me and, and made me think like, yes, that, that's what I want to be. I understand that the world is corrupt, which of course I didn't at that time, but I sort of thought I did. And, uh, and I want to be the straight arrow uh, in the crooked world. And so that was, it was really important. It really made a big difference in my upbringing and in my sense of myself. And so I've always had this deep affection for it. And there's something in my mind, I just, I love puzzles. I love especially puzzles of all, uh, any kind of word puzzle. And I remember uh, as a little kid, one of my earliest memories is playing with blocks in the shapes of human beings. And you link them together, they were acrobats, and you link them together and made these fantastic designs out of human beings. And I think, well, gee, that's what I'm still doing today. <laughs> I take the human nature and human beings and make these beautiful kind of puzzling designs uh, out of them, the idea of solving things and thinking your way into things and making sense of things, especially, has been a lifetime obsession of mine, that the idea that your idea should make sense, that you shouldn't start talking nonsense, you shouldn't believe, pretend to believe what you don't believe. And all of those are, I think, an essential part of the mystery story. The new book is interesting. To me, it embraces Christmas. It kind of marinates itself in the season, and yet it subverts it as well. There's, there are different emotions here. It has the, the comfort and nostalgia. It has the discomfort when things don't quite go the way you want them to go. Uh, talk about setting the story in Christmas. I, I, I mean, obviously, it's a key part of the story, but it's also, it's got a richness that I, I didn't see coming when I, when I started reading it. Well, first of all, that's very uh, good critical insight. I'm, I'm not surprised coming from you, but still, it's, it's nice to be read uh, well. You know, this, this story has been in my mind for at least 25 years. Um, I, I was always kind of ruminating on the fact that there are outside of the gospel, the Christmas carol, and It's a Wonderful Life, which is really just a Christmas carol in mirror image. There are no good Christmas stories. That most Christmas stories are kind of, you know, they're they're nice, fun movies, movies that make you laugh, movies that are sweet, movies that have some kind of Christmas nature. But I mean, great Christmas stories are very um, thin on the ground, and there are a ton of bad ones. And of course, you think about the ones that are on TV, on Lifetime, on uh, Hallmark. That, that are just kind of this repetitive idea that Christmas is for finding love and Christmas is for coming home and Christmas is for having your sentimental emotions fed and you know brought to fruition. But Christmas isn't about that at all. It's Christmas is actually about sacrifice and uh, and transition, uh, what the Bible calls metanoia, this fantastic change of mind where you see everything differently. And that's what makes a Christmas carol and It's a Wonderful Life such great stories. They're stories about metanoia, about a change of mind that changes everything. And so I started thinking about that and I thought, how could I write, because I love, I love Christmas and I love Christmas stories. And I thought, how can I write a Christmas story that embodies those kinds of principles? And I came up with a great last scene, which I don't want to give away because it's still pretty much the last scene of the book. For 25 years, I could not come up with a story to go with that last scene. I couldn't put it together and I would work on it and I'd give up and I'd come back to it and I'd come back to it. And then my friend uh, Otto Penzler, who is probably, uh, not probably, he is the greatest mystery editor in the country and has been for many, many years. Uh, he was on lockdown during the pandemic. He called me up just to have me keep uh, company with him. And he said, you know, you want to write a Christmas mystery. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, to, you know, to have Otto publish you was always an honor. 
And I thought, well, I got to figure this story out now. Now I'm, I'm up against it. And so I took a couple of very long walks. And on the second one, I came up with the twist of the story that would make the whole story work. And, and in doing that, you know, I, I kind of realized that in order to be a Christmas story and to be imbued with Christmas, it had to have all the wonderful things we love about Christmas, the lights and the music and the, you know, the uh, small town and all those things. But it also had to say that that's not quite it. You know, that's not really what it's about. That's the commercial side. That's the sentimental side. But underneath that is this very serious, very real life relationship with God and the sacrifice it requires and the metanoia, the change of heart that it requires. And so I wanted both those things going on at the same time. I didn't think anyone would notice it, but I, you got past me on that. <laughs> <laughs> the story also has a very strong and interesting military presence. The, the town in question, it just teeming with veterans and the culture. You mentioned the sacrifice, the unity that brings. And I, I think you do it in a way that is not, uh, not rah-rah but is kind of profound in a way. Is that a, a choice for tone and for sort of a, 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 a kind of a texture or is there something more going on there? Well, it was organic to the story. It went, once I got what the story was, it became necessary, almost, almost uh, inevitable that it be set in that kind of environment. And once, of course, you find that the story inevitably takes you there, you then have to start to figure out you know, what that's going to mean in the, in the context of the story. So it actually, that was actually something that grew up organically as so many things do really, once you get a story going, once you see where it's going to start, where it's going to go and where it's going to end uh, so many things just become, or at least seem to become necessary to the story. And that military presence and that sense of what people in the military are like and what they mean to one another and what the country means to them. Uh, all of that became uh, integral to the story. The book's hero is Cameron Winter, and he's not your typical sleuth. He's kind of big. He's kind of a bruiser when he, when push comes to shove, but he's certainly wounded emotionally, uh, a troubled soul. Uh, you know, you've written other heroes. You've written other mysteries. You really seem like, I heard you talk about this in your podcast, you're just chomping at the bit to tell more stories featuring him. What, what, what is it about this particular character that kind of sets you creatively on fire? Well, this is the thing, Christian. All my life, I, one, one of the things that I have been both praised for and attacked for by critics is that I write books that are different all the time. And it's very hard to keep an audience when one book is different from the other. People want to know that you write legal thrillers or you write horror stories or you write this or that. And my books have really gone over a range. And I've always wished that I could find a character who would sustain a series. But what I always found was that because of the way I tell stories and because of the characters I brought to the story, one, sometimes two, occasionally three stories have brought that character through an arc that completed what I thought he was there for, the, the, that completed the story that he was made to live through. And so I've never quite been able to create a character who had enough levels uh, and enough facets where I could come back and maybe do another arc and a different arc. And when you see this on TV, it's usually very fake. Usually the characters don't change very much. Usually they don't go through very much. Usually the stories are not particularly geared toward the character the way I like to tell stories. So the thing about Cameron Winter, he, as he came out of a series of thoughts, both about the story he was being placed in, but also about the time we're living in, the country that we're living in, the period in, in this country's history that makes it both fascinating and a little bit terrifying and a little bit melancholy, you know? And I think that uh, Winter embodies all of that, but he's also a guy who can sort of see it. He's somebody who is very much... Um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? He's very much immersed in the past. He is a scholar. Uh, he loves poetry. He studies romantic poetry particularly. And, and so he's constantly being brought back uh, you know, like like Gatsby back into the past. And so the past of the country is very present in him and the present of the country is also, of course, right before him. And that gives him a certain melancholy air, I think, that many of us have right now in this country. And it makes him a good commentator on what's going on. And because of that, because of that, he, he's not the only thing in the story. He is, of course, the detective. And he is, as Raymond Chandler said, the detective is everything. But at the same time, the the story become has to come to life with him on its own and a lot of times in mysteries if you read mysteries you'll notice that you don't really care what the story is about the story is kind of going on in the background it's really what the detective is doing that matters it's really the detective's personality and his relationships and i wanted to create stories using cameron winter as the uh, center of them where the mystery itself is in fact a full rich and complete novel but through winter, you're also getting a second novel, which is the novel of winter experiencing that story. I, I don't know if that's too technical or... Uh, no, no, it's interesting. I, I, I love sort of the insights into that. I, the one word that keeps sticking to my mind, I think you said it after I thought it was melancholy. And, you know, when I say your book is melancholy, I don't think that's the word you want to kind of, oh, go rush out and read this book. It's full <laughs> of melancholy. But it really does. And I, I think that for me, especially around Christmas time, it's inescapable. The, the 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 love, the family members we've lost, the moments that are fleeting, uh, even even the gifts that are unwrapped that are uh, a letdown. I, my my father used to buy a, a super secret surprise for my brother and I every year, and every year we'd we'd kind of kvetch it wasn't what we wanted. <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> we were just so ingrateful that my dad was spending all this time and heart and energy into it, and we just got to let him down every year. But uh, it, it is it is I guess linked to the season, you know. You've been telling stories for quite some time. You mentioned you kind of bounce from genres, you, different topics. Does the process change for you? Do you find that because you're older and wiser, you've got more tricks up your sleeve where it becomes a little bit, I don't maybe easier is not the right word, but or you feel maybe you're more formidable about this process or is it still brutal and hard and you have to go on those long walks to kind of tinker out the, the things that can't can't quite be solved right away? Well, it's it's hard mental work. There's no question about that. And you always feel embarrassed saying that when you know people are doing hard physical work, which is probably harder than hard mental work. But it, but it is writing a book. Uh, Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, said the best advice is the same advice they give you in prison, which is walk slowly and drink lots of water. <laughs> um, but but for me, what, what has happened is the process has become much, much, much richer. Uh, I've seen more. I know more. I understand more. There are certain things I know I can do. So I no longer go into a scene that has to stir emotions or has to be exciting or has to be, um, you know, insightful and think like, will I be able to do that? I, I know what I can do. And I, I, I'm very confident in my powers. Um, but, but what makes it still very difficult is a novel, to go back to the word organic, a novel comes to life organically. And so it starts to take you on a ride. I mean, in some ways, a novel writes you. And so that hasn't changed. The, the fact that you don't have full control of the process uh, hasn't changed. And the fact that it's going to go someplace that might surprise you, might uh, you know, excite you, might frighten you, uh, that, that still remains exactly the same. Um, what, what happens now, though, is as you go on that kind of wild ride, um, you do know how to guide the sled a little bit. You, know, you do know how to make things 
move it in the way that they want. You know how to take things in the way that the story wants to go. And so I, I work with more confidence now. I think I'm very happy with my work. I, I must confess uh, this book and this book is I've already written a sequel to this book. And I think the two of them are two of the best mysteries I've ever written. And I'm just uh, very excited by them and really thrilled uh, at, at the way they come, came out. And I could never have written at this level before. I always was, I had certain things that I was always, I think, as good as anybody else alive at doing. Uh, now there are a lot more of them, and I'm just really happy at the way these books are coming out. I've been reading a lot and listening to podcasts, just trying to educate myself as an entrepreneur and how to be better at what I do. And one of the things I hear often, which I'm very bad at, is is getting out of my comfort zone. I, you know, I'm, I'm like anyone else. I, I like to do what I, I feel like my strengths are, but getting out of my comfort zone is maybe sometimes where the growth happens. Do you feel like at this point in your career, you have a place like that, a, a sort of a, 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 a place where you're not quite cozy yet where maybe it still feels harder than it should. And is that something you kind of lean into or do you think that it doesn't really kind of apply to where you are as an artist? No, I think maybe sometimes, unfortunately, I've been very, very good at getting out of my comfort zone. And sometimes uh, that, that has made me fantastically creative, at least in my own eyes. Uh, and sometimes it has meant that I really tried to do something uh, and it, it didn't work. I mean, I've thrown whole novels away more than once. And it's, uh, it's not a happy experience. It's not something you do with a great deal of joy. But I think it's, to me, it's essential to being an artist. Uh, it's essential to being an artist that you never lean in only to what you do. I mean, you, yes, you bring certain strengths. You've honed those strengths over time. You'd be cheating your readers not to exhibit those strengths. But at the same time, if you lean into those strengths completely, you never find the new thing. You never do something that is absolutely startling, that makes the reader say, I did not see that coming. Unless, you know, I think I can pull off a good twist and a good surprise in a mystery as well as anybody, but I'm less interested in that than in a kind of scene that makes you think like, wow, I have never seen that before. Mm. And uh, and that's the thing I'm always looking for. I love, I, I, I count originality very high among the qualities in work that I like. There are wonderful works that are just uh, an, an old thing done well, and that those can be absolutely terrific. That's not my metier. My metier is doing something um, really fresh. And I think that it's one of the reasons I never was that comfortable in the movie business, that the minute you do something fresh, they think like, well, couldn't you make it more like another movie <laughs> that's a hit, you know? And and that's that's the thing that has really got me excited about the Cameron Winter stories that that has been missing for a while in that I just... I haven't done this before. I haven't done the interplay between a detective and a, and a story like this. And uh, I haven't even seen it done a lot. And it's very exciting to me. And, and it, ha it comes from pushing, pushing myself to say, you know, you know what you do, what it comes down to is every time you hit a certain juncture in a scene, there's a way to go that you know you can do. Uh, maybe it's action. I, I, I pride myself on being a really top-notch action writer. Uh, you know, so maybe you think it's action. And, and if you sit and think to yourself, well, maybe this isn't an action scene. Maybe this is an emotional scene. Maybe this is a scene where somebody's heart, uh, you know, comes open and you see them to their depths. Then you, then suddenly it becomes a very exciting and different process. And then the reader who, who knows what to think and knows what to expect suddenly goes like, wow, I did not see that coming. And he might not even know, you know, the reader is just there to be entertained. You know, that's what he should be there for. 
he may not even know that he's thinking that, but he knows that I, that freshness uh, that that comes of seeing a writer do something that was not the usual thing he does. And so I'm I'm very committed to that. It's it's not something again. It's not something essential to making a good artist. It's just something essential to what I do and the way I work. I think that ex- helps explain why you're not you're no longer required in Hollywood because they they kind of operate on a whole different principle entirely. Uh, you know, <laughs> Drew, everything I just that's right. <laughs> it's like garlic to a vampire. Uh, you you've been the Paul Revere of the right for a while, talking about the culture wars, how they matter, how they matter sometimes as much as what happens at the ballot box, and it does feel as if conservatives have finally gotten that message that they're waking up. Uh, you know, I, I recently spoke to Nick Searcy. He's got a, a documentary about. January 6th, Tucker Carlson just made a similar film. Uh, J.P. Sears is kind of, you know, taking on all comers on YouTube. And, of course, The Daily Wire is doing what they do. They're going Hollywood on their own terms. It, is it satisfying for you to see that happen? Is it enough? What, what are your general thoughts on what's happening in, in the right-of-center culture right now? Uh, it's incredibly satisfying, incredibly gratifying. I mean, I feel like uh, I was really feeling like Cassandra there for a couple of years, more than a couple of years, really over a decade. Uh, when I first started talking about this, I, I talked about it because I lived in England for seven years. When I came back, the culture had deteriorated to the point where you couldn't miss it. If you were in it, obviously it deteriorated so slowly that you might not have seen it. But if you were gone for seven years and then came back, you went, whoa, you know, like 9-11 happened. And David Letterman is blaming the United States. <laughs> well, something has gone terribly wrong, you know. And so I, I started banging that drum and I, I would go and make speeches and the people, you know, I would talk to conservative think tanks and so on. And they would look at me and they thought I was cute because I was from Hollywood you know, <laughs> and I dressed like a Hollywood guy and I talked like a Hollywood guy and they'd never quite seen that before. But they had no idea what I was talking about and they had no idea how to react. Like, well, what do we do? We're not artists. So how do we participate? How do we uh, move things forward? But interestingly, over time, uh, artists started contacting me. Uh, Andrew Breitbart contacted me immediately. I mean, Breitbart saw me coming from um, miles away because he was the other guy who really believed in the culture. And he called me up and he said, you got to get involved with all these Hollywood people. And they met and introduced me to all these people. And, and it was a really slow burn because, you know, at the end of the speech, they always tell you there should be a CTA, a call to action. Nobody quite knew what the call to action was. It's one thing to say, we need to get into the arts, we need to believe in the arts, we need to support the arts. But, but the guy sitting there is thinking, well, what do I do? And especially people with money. There were plenty of people with talent, there were plenty of people with ideas, but it was the people with money who were thinking, that, somebody said this to me just the other day, so it's not quite, it hasn't quite gone away, but they were thinking, well, what do I get for my money? You know, what, what do I want? What do I care if somebody publishes a novel? What do I care if somebody makes movies? I want to win the fifth district of Ohio (laughs) tomorrow, you know? So I got a million bucks in my pocket and I can give it there. And that Congressman has a chance of winning. If I give it to you, what are you going to do? Go off and think, and are there going to be nude scenes in your novel? (laughs) It's not going to look like a Christian, you know, thing that it should, you know, all those considerations came into play, but slowly, uh, the the deterioration of the culture continued and slowly people began to think, you know, because I start, and I, I, I'm not saying this to flatter myself, people would actually call me up and say, you know, about five years ago, I heard you make a speech. <laughs> what were you saying again? You know? <laughs> and, so, and so it's tremendously gratifying. I don't expect it to happen overnight. I don't expect every work that the right produces to be good. Uh, I, I have said from the very beginning, the important thing for conservatives to remember is that conservative art doesn't look like conservative life. The founding fathers of this country did not watch Dora's Day movies. They did not watch Christian, you know, 
happy talk movies. They read Shakespeare. They saw people's eyes put out on stage. They read Medea and saw people, a woman who kills her children. They, because they saw all those things, they understood human nature down to the ground. And when you read the Federalist Papers, you're reading people schooled in European culture who understand how broken and bent people are and how desperately you have to construct a Rube Goldberg machine like our constitution does to keep them fighting with each other so they don't kill everybody else, so they don't get together and kill each other, you know? And I think that it was that knowledge of human nature, which only comes from a culture that teaches human nature, that um, made the founders who they were. And, you know, it's, it's, it's Shakespeare who produced the constitution. It's Mozart. It's, it's uh, Michelangelo. Without them, there, there is no constitution. So it's, it, it all feeds into the deep knowledge of, of real life. And I think that if you look around at our arts right now, our arts are in a tremendous trough. Uh, wokeness has killed them dead. Uh, our music stinks. Uh, that even on streaming, our streaming is uh, TV for a while went through a brief golden age, but it's kind of passing away. Our movies are just uh, big cartoons. Uh, our novels are almost extinguished. You know, we are in, in a trough. This is the perfect moment. This is the perfect moment to start telling the truth and show people what the arts can really do. Once you're using the arts to say, oh, aren't black people nice? Aren't gay people nice? Isn't it, wouldn't it be nice if, you could, if a boy could wear a dress and nobody would bully him? Once you're doing that, art is dead. So they've killed it. They've killed it dead. It is now up to us to build a new machine. And that new machine should just be dedicated to the truth. That's what conservatives should be about. A conservative should not be about you know, look, we all want to, I love this country. I do want to wave the flag. I do want to be in a faithful, loving, married relationship. But when I speak, I want to tell the truth about human nature. And when I create, I want to tell the truth about human nature. And that's what our culture should be about. It should be about saying, you know, you're not a girl when you put on a dress, you're a Monty Python routine, you know, and, and you're not safe from bad behavior because you're black. If you're a black and badly behaved, you're just as bad as a white guy. You know, there's no, there's no getting off from original sin. There's no, uh, you know, turning around from it, except, except one way. And all of those things have to be in our arts and we shouldn't be afraid to speak of God. We shouldn't be afraid to speak of morality. We shouldn't be afraid to speak of the, twisted timber of the human heart uh and honestly that's what a conservative culture uh, and talking about an artistic culture looks like and i mean i know you know this chris and i know i'm kind of preaching to the choir here but uh you understand that when you go and look at something and it's just drumming conservative ideas into your head or leftist ideas just propaganda it doesn't really come to life but life and truth are what the arts are all about and i think that yes it's really gratifying to see us begin this what is going to be a very very long journey yeah, and I think you mentioned before that you mentioned the reader is just looking to be entertained, but I also think that the the audience also kind of intrinsically understands when a truth is being spoken, when a truth isn't being spoken. And I think I, sometimes I watch a, a, a movie or a TV show with my son, and he'll point out some of the uh, aggressive woke uh, casting or some of the movements, and I'm like, I didn't train him for that. He's just watching it and kind of sussing it out by himself, which is interesting. Uh, Drew, before we let you go, you mentioned there's a sequel on the way that's been written for When Christmas Comes with the same hero. What else is sort of on your mind? There may be projects that we can't speak of because they're not settled yet, but where do you see yourself in the next couple of years, creatively speaking? Because I, I, I suspect you're the kind of person who doesn't slow down, if not stop. No, I don't slow down. And I'm, I'm just uh, working on a script for The Daily Wire uh, that we've been working on for a while. We're trying to get it into shape uh, because I like what, very much what The Daily Wire is doing and feel that I still have some uh, screenwriting chops in me to deliver 
Uh, I've got a book coming out next year in April that is a real departure. It's a nonfiction work uh, about the romantic poets and what they have taught me about reading the gospel, uh, which at least I can tell you, no one else has written a book quite like it. <laughs> it's, very, it's very offbeat, but I think it's uh, an exciting book. It was, a it was a really exciting project. That also has been in my head for many years. So I've got a lot of that stuff coming up. I'd like to do more nonfiction. I want to continue the winter series, and I've got some more stuff I'd like to do with the Daily Wire. But I also would like to write more nonfiction because I feel I feel I have more to say now than I did in the past that can be said directly, uh, just having acquired a certain amount of knowledge over the years. So I think that um, I, I, you know, I got to say, if I can keep from getting hit by a lightning bolt or a car, I have a lot on my plate. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm good to hear, and uh, thank you for joining Right on Hollywood. The new book, of course, is When Christmas Comes. It's a perfect gift for friends, family members, or anyone who just loves a great mystery. And not, not one of those quick, trashy reads that it is a page-turner. It's got some depth. It's got some heft to it, and I think that's a nice combination. And uh, I have to say, on behalf of fellow conservatives, I'm sorry we didn't listen to you earlier about the culture, but I think we are right now, and uh, I'm glad you were kind of ringing that bell for so long. It does matter. And uh, all the best, Drew, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Always great talking to you, Christian. Thanks for listening to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcasting family. If you're enjoying the show, cool, that's great. If there's any way I can improve it, though, I really hope you can slip me a note. Email me, christian at hollywoodintoto.com. I would love to hear your feedback. And uh, be kind, please. It's the holiday season. I hope you all have a great week, and we will catch up with you again next time. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodIntoto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever. <laughs>